Where would you go if you were feeling unwell or wanted to refer yourself for health and wellness support? If you needed a repeat prescription or want to book a GP appointment, the answer is to go to shwh.co.uk because the Sunderland Health and Wellness Hub has all the information, advice and links you need about local healthcare services in Sunderland and it'll direct you to the right healthcare services for your needs. So for all your health and wellness needs, visit shwh.co.uk. This is our People podcast, telling the stories behind South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Foundation Trust. Hello and welcome to this episode of Our People podcast. Uh, I am Fiona Thompson. I'm one of the communications officers with South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Foundation Trust. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Elaine Conway. Uh, She is our psychosexual therapist and is based with Gated and South Tyneside Sexual Health Service. So before we kick off, probably guessed it from uh, the intro, uh, today's conversation is going to be about um, all things sexual. So just bear that in mind when you're listening and um, I hope you learn lots and... uh, discover more from our conversation as well. So, um, Elaine, why don't you start us off by saying where you're based and what work you also do outside the NHS. Hi there. So, I'm based in two centres. I work two days a week in um, Trinity Health Square or Health Centre in the sexual health department. And I also work at Palmer Community Hospital in Jarrow. So, that's Gateshead and Jarrow. Uh Great stuff. And so you also do a little bit of work outside the NHS, we should probably mention as well, don't we? Yeah, I do work still for Relate, two centres way down the country. Thankfully, Covid allowed us to uh, move online. So I work for uh, Relate Milton Keynes and Relate Avon, uh, Bristol and Bath. So I just do a few hours for both centres. And I also do private clients. Right, OK. And you also told me before we kicked off that you have also been involved in some other podcasting. So... What's that called and what's that about, if anybody's interested in finding out a little bit more about? So a friend and I um, record some podcast episodes about surviving domestic violence. You put me on the spot here, so <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think it's because I don't do any of the admin on this. Finding you surviving domestic violence. Good, and I'm sure people can find that if they give it a little bit of a yeah. search. Who else does it involve as well? It might come under their name. Natalie War. Natalie War, so it might come under her name as yeah. well. Brilliant. Sorry for catching you That's on the spot right. about that one, but um, I thought it was important to just get that in there just to give people a little bit of background. I really want to know from the start, what kind of led you into a career as a therapist? And I know that's a story in its own right, but then you also specialise in this area of sexual therapy. So can you just tell us a bit about your career so far? Yeah, interestingly, I started off my career many, many years ago in the NHS where I was a technician, but after 10 years of that, I got fed up and I decided to retrain as a teacher. So most of my working life I spent uh, teaching, both in primary and secondary schools. But as I was sort of getting towards the end of that career, and I was, I was just getting tired, really, of teaching, I really enjoyed the pastoral care and that side working with the children. So I decided to look for a, a career where I could sort of expand that and uh, moving into counselling and therapy seemed the ideal choice. So I I again retrained. So I stayed with the teaching and did a part-time master's degree in um, relationship counselling. And that took me three years, so I did it part-time. 
which was a quite hard going. And then while I was doing that training, part of that initial training covered psychosexual, some psychosexual themes. And while I was doing, I thought that's you know that's just really really interesting. So in discussions with the tutor, she suggested that I looked for a, an additional course, and it seemed fairly sensible to just specialise in some way. And psychosexual therapy seemed the ideal choice for me. So I followed that up. And you mentioned you were a technician. What were you, what were you a technician of? I'm just curious to know, like, your yeah. NHS career talk, started out in something very, very different to what it's very come to yeah. here. But... Um, I worked, I was working in Birmingham at the time, and it was as a medical physics and physiological measurement technician. Oh, and that's worth a podcast in its own right, because, like... <laughs> I always want to know what medical physics is all about as well, so yeah. you touched on something there. And you also, what kind of age ranges did you teach in, in primary? But also, I know that you told me what subject you taught in a secondary, and I'm, I would love to tell people what you taught, because if you think about, listeners, when you listen to this, what, what your teacher in this area would have been like, like it's for my head, I think, a little bit. So most of my teaching career was spent in primary schools. So I taught from reception up to, up to year six over the years, but I also did two years in a secondary school and I taught design technology. I did textiles, so I, I taught people to sew. I'm just so. thinking about the textile teachers that I had at comprehensive school <laughs> and uh, I would be absolutely stunned if it turned out that they'd taken the same career path as you. <laughs> you know, no shade on them. But um, yeah, I think we probably all have a little bit of experience of that in secondary school and I just think that's a really curious way that your career's kind of taken that different direction. So you were saying that you'd done a master's, so what kind of training did you have to do as part of being a therapist and also this kind of area? Like, what does it take? Well, as, as, as well as the academic side, I had to find a place to do my clinical placement. So that's why I ended up at Relate, because Relate offer uh, training opportunities for counsellors and therapists. So I was at Milton Keynes and I did three years training there and then I went on the same place they were they were great actually because they they half funded my masters in psychosexual therapy uh, so uh, I've sort of been there six years because yeah, I'm quite curious though like how many therapists like you are there around like it's it doesn't feel like there's loads of you just from in our own trust there are not many psychosexual therapists I'm not sure of the exact number Maybe a couple of years ago, somebody said there's about 800. Mm. So, so there nationally? Are in this, yeah, in the UK. Mm. Uh, so not many. Uh, when you think there's about 10,000, 11,000 general counsellors, it, it's quite a niche. Quite a niche area. <laughs> yeah. Which means it's extra special to have this chat with you. So thank you very much for taking the time to do so. So do you want to take through what kind of uh, situations a psychosexual therapist helps with? I know you've got a little bit of a list there. I have, yeah. Women would typically come with conditions like vaginismus. And what's that for anybody who isn't quite okay, sure off the top of your head? Um, vaginismus is a condition where um, it's very difficult for anything to penetrate the vagina. So we'll present problems with tampons, mm-hmm. uh, which is often where it's first discovered, but also during sex, no vaginal penetration. Either it's impossible or it's very painful, and that is because it's an involuntary spasm of the muscles in the pelvic floor. 
So it's often very psychological, but it also can be tackled physically. So there are pelvic floor physiotherapists that deal with vaginismus as well. Is it linked only? I'm not going to say only linked to trauma because I don't think I know enough about this. But can that relate to that, or is it um, entirely down to how would you break down those the reasons behind it? Um, I mean, sometimes it is linked to pain. Mm. So there's two types of vaginismus. There's primary where somebody will discover they've got this and they've never had any sexual experiences. And then the secondary, where there's never really been a problem, and then something will happen that will cause a problem. So often, if women have been through a traumatic birth, Mm. that can trigger. So anything really that's painful, and the idea that pain can be linked to sex or anything sexual, the body really takes control rather than the conscious mind. But often women think it's only them because it's not something that's talked about. But actually it's it's more common than that. It can be up to one in ten women that can oh, get no vaginismus. Idea was that yeah. oh. And so what other things do you help out with? Well, they've, they've all got lovely names. <laughs> so vulvodynia, which is just generalised pain on, around the vulva, not just the vagina again very common in women low libido for various reasons often linked to antidepressants for men erectile difficulties are quite common things like premature ejaculation and delayed ejaculation unable uh, inability to get erections or failure to maintain erections so and again low libido in men what age ranges do you see and is there a particular age range age range you see more than others and do a particular generation uh, seek support for same issues or is it quite varied across the board? I would see people from 14 onwards, really. I think the youngest person that I've seen recently is 15, up to end of life. There isn't an upper limit. Mm. The, The oldest person I've seen, 75, but I know some of my colleagues see them, see people that are even older than that. And do they tend to come with the same kind of issues of their age range or is it really just a, a whole range of things it tends to be a whole range I mean, at one point I saw a lot of young girls that had got vaginismus that were like teenage and just discovered that when they had gone to try experience that mm-hmm. sex for the first time had discovered they'd mm-hmm. got a problem but I'd see that is something that can affect women at any age a lot of it's varied so erectile difficulties any age premature ejaculation any age um, tends to be something people say well I've always this has happened to me for many years but I've just decided now I've decided to come come and have a chat about it because it's got yeah to that stage and I think when we were discussing this beforehand you also mentioned that you sometimes see people who have what we might term as addictions so I don't know whether you can touch a little bit on, on what that's all about. Yeah, I would really call them compulsive sexual mm. behaviours. There's a big debate about compulsive sexual behaviour versus sex addiction, but there is a difference. They're not really interchangeable. So how would what would how would you differentiate those? Well, it's a difficult one. Mm. I've caught you on the spot, haven't I? <laughs> no, it's because it, it's it's very debatable. I this is just personally mm. prefer to look at things as compulsive sexual behaviours rather than sex addiction i think is it an unhelpful label i think it is Mm. you know it it sets up a lot in people's heads when you talk to talk about addiction you can't really equate it to 
like chemical addictions like drink or mm-hmm. drugs, although some people would say that it does elicit chemicals in the body. But it's generally linked with like self-soothing, which all addictions tend to be a bit of escapism or you know sometimes control. But I do work with some people that have got compulsive sexual behaviours, but we would not really look at the behaviour rather than we'd rather look at what the underlying cause of that is. So, so the bigger picture rather yeah. than specifics. Because I know when we talked about before, you were keen not to kind of go into too much detail because it could identify patients. And, you know, I know that you work quite a wide geographical area, but, you know, the world is small, isn't it? So It is. Um, and I'm sure it's a fascinating area, <laughs> uh, but we should be mindful about pe- people's privacy as well. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would say is, I mean, you said it is an unhelpful label because it, just for the person themselves really just the idea of addict is it's not going to help them recover no i suppose my use of it might be picked up from you know the media that we follow oh, yeah. my past career um you know people love a label don't they whereas actually it's not helpful in your sphere hmm. well, there we go uh, we've learned something there so do people of all sexual orientations seek out your support do you see some more than others I suppose the same question goes kind of goes for gender as well. Like yeah, I mean, I'd say uh, all orientations. Uh, it's it's interesting that in different services or different places that I work, I'd see more of one orientation than the other. Yeah. So the service that here in Gateshead do see quite a lot of gay men. Um, the relate services I see quite a lot of um, lesbian. Mm. women so I suppose what I was almost trying to ask with that question is um, your door's open to everybody isn't it absolutely and you know uh, not many but I have seen trans men and trans women so in terms of gender they've got a problem and they want to talk it through and you're here yeah and it's a sexual problem then we'll, we're here to listen great that's good to know and so when it comes to uh, your patients how are they referred to or can they refer themselves and how long might their treatment last and how long does it take? That's a lot of questions in one. It is. Mainly the referrals come through uh, the GPs. Um, some referrals are internal, so they'll come from the health advisors or they'll come through from uh, the nursing staff when they see people in clinics. Some are referred through from the hospitals, some from other psychological services, so the IAP services. Oh, and IAP is uh, talking therapies, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So quite a lot of uh, referrals on through the health service. But actually we do take self-referrals. So if anybody thinks they've got a problem and it's psychosexual in nature, then they can just ring in. And what will normally happen is they'll get an appointment with me on the telephone and then I'll just... Um, have, have a, a chat to them about yeah. their concerns right yeah. okay so i suppose it's kind of taking that first foot to getting yeah. help if you're the right place for it and i'm sure you would probably be able to support them and tell them the right place if you weren't yeah, quite yeah, the right I mean, person i can signpost people yeah. on yeah so that that that, that chat on the end of the, of the phone can just be that very first yeah. point of contact uh well I, what i try to do is as well i don't always do this um, but if i've got the time i will make the initial call to arrange appointments. I think it's quite important that people have contact with real people. And you're starting that relationship already, aren't you? Yeah. That you know, they're dealing with you directly. Oh, yeah. that's quite that's quite good to know because that's probably quite a rare thing, isn't it? That's good to know. And and her, so treatment wise, is there like a, a stock amount of appointments they might have or how long it takes? I'm just thinking 
for example, uh, if I've been on a refer, refer to a service, you get so many so many appointments, and that's kind of your lot until it's it's to the point where actually you do need more, or they say you, you sort. I mean, I'm thinking about physiotherapy, which is very different. But you know, I don't know is 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 it is it as simple as saying that, or is it is every single case very different? I think every case is different. However, there's a sort of ballpark figure of twelve sessions. But I tend to see people fortnightly or even longer. So it, it is a different service to maybe other counselling services, which tend to want to see people weekly. Mm. That's not the case. Is that because the momentum needs to be kept aware with you? It's a kind of a longer-term project. Yeah, and because psychosexual therapy is a mix of psychodynamic counselling and CBT. Which ah, is so psychodynamic is... What does that mean? Well, psychodynamic is a therapy that would probably want to look at your history. Right, okay. So it's the, the classic... I've not heard that phrase before, it's really um, interesting. What, what happened to you when you were a child? It's not really like that, but in... It's talking s- somebody through their history. In sexual terms, we're quite interested in what your early experiences were like and what, what happened to you in your family of origin and whether people would talk about sex to you mm. and, you know, where your uh, values and beliefs around sex come from. And the other part of it is uh, CBT, which is cognitive behavioural therapy. And with that comes homework normally. So it's, yeah, let's talk about how you can tackle the problem, go away and practice. Right. So that's that's why we're quite... I'm not always, because that tends to be more relevant when we're doing a thing called sensate focus. Yes, which we're going to come on to in a we second. We'll come on to that, yeah. Because we've talked about this before when we were preparing <laughs> and I'm fascinated by this. And so do do sessions kind of, do you block out an hour? How long does it take? I'm just thinking like if people are trying to work out what do they need to put into this? <laughs> I mean, normal counselling sessions last 50 minutes. Oh, right, okay. Which <clears throat> I think the rationale for that is... 50 minutes. Attention span wise, I would imagine it's quite quite a bit actually. It's 50 minutes with uh, your client or your patient, and then 10 minutes minutes to write your notes. Rest, (laughs) toilet break, or have a drink and a bit of admin. Mm. Um, But you need that break. Yeah, because it must be quite draining on you sometimes to go through. Yeah, Yeah, there's only, it's difficult to see more than about five clients, although I I sometimes do in a a day. Some cases are more challenging than others, Mm. but. uh, Oh, that's good. I was just curious to know from the outset what people might be looking at. Um, and so what happens actually during those sessions? Do people come along on their own? Do they bring their other half if they've got one? Like, what's the kind of setup as you see it? Or does it depend on each and every case? This is an interesting one because I hadn't worked as a psychosexual therapist in the NHS until last year. So it, it tends to be very, very different in the health service as opposed to an agency like Relate because people are referred on their own because they go to their GP on their own and say, I've got this problem and they get referred yeah. on. But often... It's a relationship It is thing. a relationship thing. Yeah. Um, and if you think about it, even if one person has a problem, it impacts the relationship. So it impacts both people. So you would tend to say... Uh, yeah, I'll see you, talk it through, and then extend an invitation to the partner. Yeah, and I guess that's a conversation that they need to have, and I suppose sometimes it's quite difficult to broach these things if it feels something that's really private to them. Or well, maybe th- something that they're absolutely desperate to get help for, and I they're think just pleased to know that they're, they're, they're able to get the help through you yeah. and it is recognised as an issue. Actually, very few people don't tell their partners. Um, some come on their own, and some say, I'll have to ask if my partner wants to, but most partners will turn up. Yeah. 
It's a, it's a huge part of a lot of people's relationships, isn't it? So, like you say, mm-hmm. if it affects one person, it's likely to have a knock-on impact on somebody else. And yeah. I guess everybody just wants to be happy and loved and all the rest of that I mean, side of things. It's quite good to see people together because mm-hmm. then you only have to... You can impart whatever information you want to tell them uh, in one go. They'd both hear it. And other than that, you're talking to somebody and saying, you know, relay that information... And that, that can be that quite difficult work. in any health setup at all because sometimes you don't take it all in and it can be quite hard to re- relay that to another person, can't it? Well, You're like, well, I think they said this or the interpretation might be quite difficult. It, it's a stressful environment. I think we always have to remind ourselves, although this is our working environment and we get very used to it, for a lot of people, they're quite nervous about coming in, especially to psychosexual therapy. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I guess some people must be really just very... St- you know open and direct about it and others must be you must have to really kind of support them and get to the root of what they're actually talking about must be quite a skill to get people chatting yeah i mean if i can i try and keep things light and sometimes humorous just to break the ice really to say look we can talk about this it's and that's any therapist as well isn't it because whoever you're going to to talk about that thing it it's it's a it's an issue for you isn't it spiky feel a bit hard difficult it's difficult to and sometimes. i mean research has said that the surprisingly doesn't mu- actually matter what therapy you're delivering but that 60 percent of the success is down to the relationship that you develop with the therapist so and sometimes do people start off talking about it and then do they come back and say actually when i talked about that I didn't really tell you the full picture and they kind of elaborate as they kind of create that connection with you yeah, I've been thinking about that psychosexual therapy is it's sort of divided up into bits mm. at the beginning where you, you have an initial meeting and then you'll do something called a history take, which is the the bit where you delve into the past. The past mm. and often while people are talking about that, things occur because, you know, that's really what therapy is about. It's about talking things through and doing what we call externalising a lot of internal thoughts and hearing yourself talking about something can be it can be a revelation sometimes yeah. and people will get upset i guess yeah. yeah always got tissues on the table yeah but that's fine looking emotions and talking about things that have been upsetting for them in the past oh, yeah. they're not really thought about and um i mean what underlies quite a lot of the work is shame mm. People get very ashamed of some of the problems that they've got. Shame is underpins a lot of things to do with sex because of the society we live in and the way that we're brought up. And, mm. You know, it's actually getting rid of that for people, if you can. That, that's uh, That must take that's... a real skill. <laughs> um, and you've already mentioned it, but uh, you are going to tell us a little bit about um, something you use called Sensate Focus. I'm going to spell it out for anybody who wants to Google it. Uh, is S-E-N-S-A-T-E and then focus. So how do you use Sensate Focus uh, to to help people address their sexual issues? Um, Well, Sensate Focus, a bit of history, it was developed by Masters and Johnson in America in the late 60s. And over the years, it's been modified a bit, but it's still probably one of the most useful techniques, really, to help people reconnect so it, it does various things. It's a, a set of exercises that's based on mindful touching. So it reconnects people, mainly because when a lot of these problems occur, what happens is people will avoid 
any sexual contact at all. Uh, so you'll you'll find people coming along and say, oh, well, we don't we haven't done anything for two years or four years or however long it's taken them to come along and try and address the problem. So that's then quite a negative sort of habit and you've got to reconnect them. Because actually what's most important is not sex, although they, they come and say, well, we want to, you know, have a sex life again. But it, it's more important that they connect and they develop a sense of intimacy. So sensate focus, briefly, is their structured exercises. You take it in turns to invite your partner to what we'll call a session. <laughs> um, it's difficult because life gets in the way. Yeah, and um, kind of trying to schedule anything and then it becomes like a bit, like you say, homework almost, yeah. doesn't it? It becomes a task. But if we say they put aside 30 minutes-ish and they just take it in turns to explore each other's body at first in a non-sexual way, so there's actually a sex ban. So when you say non-sexual, what kind of things would be on that kind of list of things you can do? Oh, we can touch anywhere. Oh. Except the genital area Uh. or the bottom or breasts or anything that you would think of as overtly arousing, so... So simple as holding somebody's hand or a hug or something along those um, lines. Yeah, but it'd be it's an exploratory exercise. It's also fairly experimental, and you can try different types of touches. And you don't have to just limit that to your fingers. You can use side of your face, your lips, mouth. And so, and how does it progress t- from there then? I mean, it seems, sorry, it seems fairly obvious actually. But um, <laughs> but yeah, how, what what's what's the kind of the progress? Well, I suppose what you what you're really trying to see is how they get on with that. The mindful bit is really this is what sets it apart from just oh go away and you know touch each other. I think you're doing it from the perspective of what can I see? What am I noticing here about touching? Both of you are concentrating on yourself rather than the other person, because a lot of the time, uh, sex has been about am I pleasing my partner? Am I, are they enjoying this? And that's one of the things that's a real problem because when you're in your head having all those thoughts, you're not really engaged in your, in, own. In, in your connection. So it's about not worrying about what's happening to your partner, but just immersing yourself in your own experience of touching. It's probably a lot easier to focus on what's happening when you're being touched. It's probably more difficult when you're touching, but that's... We're encouraging people to do that about 10-15 minutes each and you know a lot of it will be eventually about communication and where they can talk to each other about what they like and what they don't like and so it's kind of breaking down that shame almost yeah and so do you use it in particular cases is there like some of the things you've mentioned earlier that it's kind of ideal for it's very good for well anything that's i suppose fear-based because when people are frightened of something happening. So if you're frightened of something being painful or you're frightened that you're not going to get an erection, then you're going to be in your head worrying about that. There's going to be a deal of anxiety. So you can't really be sexual mm. and anxious. The two things that don't, don't really go together. Well, do they? Oh. oh, right. Thanks very much for taking through that. And I'm sure that there's loads of information online if people want to have a Yeah, have a I mean, it's, it's too big a thing. Yeah, you, to I know really you said through, it, was, it, was, it was, there's a lot of detail to I've it. I've just <laughs> given you the Yeah, but I've never flavor. heard of it before, so hopefully somebody out there will... Oh, you can Google it. it. Yeah. 
Yeah. There we go. We've already talked about your younger patients. So I know that some people who are parents might be listening or maybe somebody who's involved in education. What advice would you give to them in terms of passing on information advice to young people? Are there any really good resources you would recommend? Um, I think this can be quite daunting, can't it, for parents in particular or, you know, I've had children ask me questions about sexual things before. I was like, I know what the right answer is technically, but what's the right thing to say? I mean, it's one of my pet subjects. I wish, in a way, that we had a really good sex education programme in this country. But it's very hit and miss, depending on where you live and depending on the school that you go to, because it's often delivered by people who don't really want to do it. <laughs> I would say there were places in the country that where sex education would be delivered by people like us in the sexual health team. But as funding has been sort of slimmed down things like that have disappeared yeah because i think one of my 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 next question was going to be like what's the same for adults too because i know my generation so i'm in my very early thought 40s um so school sex education i mean i went to a catholic school for starters the 90s so my sex education stopped and started with labeling biological parts and that was it that was actually it and i don't know whether things have moved on now but it just seems like this huge issue that hasn't been addressed for all generations and I guess, you know, where would you turn to if you're looking for some, for some kind of help well, to get I, things right and as toned right and as, you know... I mean, it's very correctly. difficult. I will stress this is my opinion. That's fine. We're all right with opinions. <laughs> I think parents get very worried because they think if they give children too much information, there's going to be an explosion in sort of sexual activity. From my perspective, I think... This is sometimes a mistake. I think power, knowledge is power. And I think giving children information, the right information, gives them the power then to make the right choices for themselves. I think it's often coloured by the parents' own experience of what happened to them and what their sex education was like. And, you know, to come back to something that we talk about in psychosexual therapy, where their values and beliefs come from and what the family of origin, you know, what their values and beliefs were. So, you know, there's a lot of external influences as well as things like religion, you know. It's very difficult sometimes to to, to know what the right thing is. Are there any good books that you've seen where, like, you know, this is a really good... Is that is that too simplistic? Because it's not a simple... Seven, like you say, you know, each household is different about attitudes and language and religion and, you know, values and things. So it, it's a bit of a, a difficult one, isn't it? It is difficult. I mean, there are, there are quite a lot of good books out there, especially, say, for parents of children who are neurodiverse, where there may be, or parents who've got children with learning difficulties who still need sex education because their bodies will still mature sexually and they they probably do need yeah. so i guess um, some again you know books are a good place to kind of have a look and see what there are suits i mean your... i would say it's personal choice mm. i'm i'm loath to recommend things because although i might think they're good yeah. they may not meet the needs of the people that that's true. Uh, yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a narrow question on my part. But I guess if you just look for what suits your needs in, the, in your situations, you know your family best, don't you, and your children best. Your own outlook best, I guess, if we're talking about ourselves. I mean, I did look up, and I sometimes will with patients, if we're looking for books, I looked up a set of books 
for somebody who asked a question about what she should tell her son who's autistic and we had a look through online and there's there's a choice so it's it's really if you want to use books i'm not saying that's a terrible idea it's not be useful to use the book in as a starting point for a conversation and i think that is what a lot of parents struggle with having that conversation because it's it's a difficult one Mm. yeah you know yeah absolutely and I think one thing that probably crops up for a lot of parents nowadays is this theory whether it's in the media or otherwise that it's quite easy to access porn nowadays I mean we've got a computer in our hands most of the day and whether it can cause issue for our younger generation and put ideas in the mind about how things should be and maybe that's true of other ages as well is that something you're seeing in your work yeah so what kind of issues do you find yourself having to help our patients address and I think it, it sort of links in with the what we were just talking about in terms of sex education. So if you imagine that you're an 11-year-old boy and your first experience of sex is accessing porn, the kind of messages that you're going to get from that. The bottom line is that porn is adult entertainment and it, it isn't real. Some of the problems arise when people who access porn think that is real and their expectation of sort of ordinary partner sex is very skewed then. As well as ways, like as somebody who's... Your expectation of what your partner's body should look like. What they're willing to do? Definitely. There's there's obvious fashions, I think, with what you see in porn. There's some really dangerous practices, like choking. Mm. Should never be attempted, but you will see that. It's very rarely... Uh, women choking men either it's it's normally the other way around but that's not a normal practice but if you were a teenager watching that you might think that is normal and you might try and persuade your partner mm. that that is what they should do which of course brings up the question of consent as well doesn't it yeah. um, because I mean I consent's that, really important and it's something that needs more and more and more discussion but it's not just something that you would talk about the first time that you met It's an somebody. ongoing conversation. Absolutely. Consent needs to be every time you want to be sexual, you would negotiate what, what you want. There shouldn't be any assumption about what you do or how far you go. And it's something that I see in my work, even with older generations, there's no conversation there's no real negotiation and that's what leads to people avoiding sex i see that's an interesting point and you know you were saying children as long as young as 11 is that is that embedded in research or is that something you've seen as a practitioner it's not something i've seen but you're aware some of my colleagues have yeah my supervisors worked with a, a boy as young as eight right okay which is you know a frightening thought yeah I suppose it just goes to show this is, you know, how people seek their education if they don't get it through, you know, schools and books and yeah, parents I mean, and things. But I mean, there's always a natural curiosity there, isn't there? To, there is. To try and, and see just because you're not talking you might about feel rude. it. Yeah. I mean, if you don't talk to, about sex to teenagers, that doesn't stop them being curious and exploring. Mm. Personally, I would much rather, and did with my children, make sure that they absolutely knew what was what so they could make an informed choice Hmm. and you know it'd be nice if everybody thought like that but you know 
Yeah, and I suppose every parent takes it differently, how they feel at the time, or you know, if you've got a young person in your life and they ask you questions. You know, sometimes they, they, ca- they catch you at a moment when you're not quite ready for it, or you know, you actually might not know the answers, and rather than saying, "Actually, I'll go away and find out," or "Let's talk about this later," and we'll sit down and have a proper mm-hmm. chat, you know, you you feel embarrassed. Yeah, I mean, there is um, there's an organisation called the Sex Education Forum, which is really for educators. So, so that's uh, a, another place that somebody can look for as well, and for a bit detail. Um, you can, yeah. But I mean, it's there's a lot of teachers is to try and help practitioners in that area improve what they do. I mean, they're having to counter a lot of scare mongering. I think in the press about what is taught in schools. And I know that you're. I asked you this question uh, before about what feedback you have from your pa- patients following their treatments. But it's not quite as straightforward as getting like you know a review, is it? Um, how do you know when you've kind of had a bit of success with your the people you work with? Uh, well, they normally tell me. Good. That's <laughs> as straightforward as that. Um, but I mean, it, it's part of a therapeutic process that you would evaluate as you went along. Actually, it's more important that they feel successful that the that I feel successful. <laughs> but I mean, if they feel that it's successful. Then, then I know that whatever we've been doing yeah. has been the right thing. Yeah. And I've probably touched on a few of these things already, but uh, what popular misconceptions crop up regularly with your parents? So a bit of a myth-busting session. So this might be a little bit more graphic than I'm prepared for, but <laughs> I don't know whether you've made like a bit of a, a few notes about things that crop up in your conversations with patients that just simply aren't correct or actually are true and you just want to make sure that people are a little bit more know what they're talking about. Okay. Well, what, what I've done, I had a long think about this because lots of myths. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but like, I've chosen four. Go on. Okay. Four's a good number. Right. So, married uh, men are always ready or want sex. Not true. Not true. No. Uh, and this is the one that feeds into the erectile difficulties. When men can't get erections or they they can't maintain erections, if they've got that myth rolling around they're going to feel inadequate mm. so it's it's going to make them feel really bad yeah uh, so definitely not true it's like men and women are subject to the pressures of life if you're tired you know if the baby's kept you awake all night if you've been ill if you breathed you know lots of life events mm. might simply just not be in the mood no absolutely and uh, you know men and women might not be in the mood so um men like sex more than women oh no <laughs> not true women enjoy sex too they do right but there's there's almost an expectation that women shouldn't or they shouldn't show that they do and that I mean, feeds into loads of i mean we're probably a bit more of an open society than we ever have been before but yeah that feeds into loads of different articles and books and things that i've read you know that that's how it is when actually not the case well, I think traditionally, well, maybe women have not felt able to express that unless they were in a committed relationship for fear of being called various names. Yeah, I suppose that goes to, to the attitude that, you know, bachelors, men can go out and enjoy themselves and women, if they do the same, have several sexual partners, they are viewed in a particular way. Yeah. And we still live in a society like that, I guess, don't we? Uh, I think on a societal level, we look like we've got different opinions. But at grassroots level, it's going to take a while for that to roll through. You know, because we've still got a whole generation 
of people that lived through that experience and haven't necessarily changed that opinion. Yeah. And I guess we, we kind of date in a different way now, don't we? You know, a lot of things through apps now, you know, yeah. however many years ago, dating apps on, and, you know, speed dating, all the rest of it was seen as a bit of an eye roll situation, whereas now it's how I think most people I know have met their other halves. Um, it's a different way to meet people, you know, we don't mm. just... I mean, statistically, it's very difficult to do, but we all know people that have. Yeah. Mm. There you go. What's the next one? Women should be able to orgasm from vaginal penetration. No. <laughs> <laughs> So how does that crop up in your sessions and, you know, what kind of things do people bring along with that one? Uh, well, I think people would say, oh, you know, I find it very difficult to orgasm. And then when you pick that apart, you'd say, actually, women will orgasm from clitoral stimulation. They won't necessarily, because there may be women that can for a variety of reasons. But it's about 70% of women would not be able to. Do you think that's partly because that people don't quite understand their own biology? Or the biology, biology of the human body? Uh, don't quite know yeah. which bits do what? Well, I, mean, I, I, don't, say, I don't remember labelling all of that in my, my uh, biology um, lessons in your I was going to say, I bet you never labelled a clitoris. No, I'm absolutely <laughs> sure of it. But yeah, it just goes to show, you know, that's the well, kind of... It's only about 30 in. years ago that they actually discovered there was an internal clitoris. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, and for people that are interested, there's some really beautiful designer jewellery... <laughs> Yes, I know. There's a big market for that kind of thing nowadays, isn't there? Yeah, clitoris earrings. And, yeah, I've been to the vag- vagina museum myself. Yeah, they had, had a very big shop. Uh, so there's lots out there if you want to go and find it. Yeah, and I think you've got one last one for us. Old people don't have sex. Old people. Mm. Wrong. <laughs> because you were saying it's a lifelong thing, and you yeah. you see patients right up until end of life, really. Yeah. Yeah, um, and you know. That's not to say that your sexual activity post 60 or 70 is going to be the same as it was <laughs> when you were in your 20s. But You'd be in a different era, I guess, of your sex life. Well, I think the problem is people, and I will say specifically heterosexuals, tend to link sex with penis and vagina sex. That's that sex. That's like a hierarchy mm. of which that is the, like the main course. And if they can't do that, as somehow it it hasn't quite worked, everything else is foreplay. But actually, everything else is still sex. If it's arousing, it's sex. So whether it be mutual masturbation or oral sex, it's It's still still sex. Sex Sex is sex. It is. There we go. Uh, Well, thank you very much for taking us through those. Um, I'm very grateful. And... We kind of touched on a few of this, these the, kind of as, this an aspect of this already. But how do you think society's attitudes to sex have changed over the years? And have you seen that in your work, or have you seen any research that kind of throws that up? Are we getting better at talking about sex? Or <laughs> well, you'd think we would be. I think yes, in some ways. In some ways. In some ways, and no, in others. I mean, it's sex is more talked about, but I think they often do it. It's often in magazines. I think it's. It, puts more pressure on people so often it's like how to please your partner how to have 50 orgasms and you know all that kind of stuff at the end of the day people got a choice and not everybody wants to be very sexual and some people don't want to be sexual at all and it's down to personal choice you know and you shouldn't be made to feel that you are less than for any reason so you know part of my job 
would be to explore some of that with people. And I have worked with asexual clients. But society is it's a weird mix. We're very funny about mentioning sex. But, I mean, I suppose it's a British way. It's very innuendo. Yeah. Led, isn't it? And I, I've, I've come across some people through work and personal life where you would describe somebody as being very coarse or brash if they were talking about sex, whereas some people seem very buttoned up and actually is, there isn't really a happy medium at all, is there? We're all very different and we all have our different outlooks and, you know, somebody might be loud and boisterous about these things because they feel happy to talk about them and sometimes I guess it might be masking the whole other part of their life. Uh, I'm just thinking of various characters in my head when I've <laughs> from, from people I've worked with before. But yeah, is, is, that, is it like, do you kind of see, have you seen through the generations, you know, things change? Well, I think this... You think about where you're, when you started being a teacher, for example, you know, did you think from, from where you are today? Well, if, if I think in terms of equality, mm-hmm. I would say that there's a definite sense of equality or more or moving towards that equality so uh, which probably started in the 60s you know when um, uh, with contraception because once women could control whether they got pregnant or not that was a liberation so they could decide whether to be sexual or not so we're, we're th- it's a slow process but I think we are moving in that direction yeah. Taken decades, but we're getting there. Yeah. And so you were also doing some women uh, work with women who are being treated for breast cancer. So could you tell us a little bit about that and what kind of issues they might face uh, kind of during the maybe after their treatment? Yeah, actually, I'm going to talk to a group of women that have had a breast cancer diagnosis uh, this weekend. This is the first time that I've actually talked to a group of women like that. It's really to explore how they are feeling. I think it's going through the whole process, the drugs that they have to take, you know, all of that, as I've said before, you know, doesn't take much to affect your sexuality and your expression of it. So if you're feeling ill, you're not going to feel sexual. If you have breast cancer and you actually lose a breast, that has a massive impact on how you view yourself. Unfortunately, for both men and women, image of ourselves is very much tied up in our physical appearance. You know, can you see yourself as sexual when you've, you know, maybe lost um, a breast that was very important to you? Mm. So this, you know, it's a, it's quite complex. Yeah. Depends, I think, on the individual and how they're affected. But it's yeah. So you're you going to do some group work with them, or is it kind of individuals or a bit? The work that I'm going to do is just, it's just basically question and answer. It's it's a forum, really, allowing people to ask questions that they may not have had the answer to. No one would hope, but I don't think this is the case, that when you go along to a hospital and you have that diagnosis, that some of these things would be explored, how it would affect the rest of your life, especially your sexuality, Mm. you know. Yeah. But I'll be interested. I could probably report back. Yeah, that could be interesting. We'll come back and have a bit of a chat about it. It'd be quite interesting because I presume, you know, that conversation will lead on to other things and hopefully maybe something in, in the kind of long term. And I know you're already working on a, a bit of an idea which could you see could see you chatting to women who are going through the menopause and presumably maybe afterwards. Well, the um, menopause is a really uh, hot topic at the mm-hmm. moment. Thankfully, that's a bit of a pun, I suppose, really. Because uh, thinking what many women feel when they go through the menopause, 
It's actually something that there are uh, members of the team here in Gateshead and in Palmer's uh, that are we're, we're interested in maybe looking at doing workshops or maybe at some point, I'm speculating here, running some dedicated, dedicated clinics. Because they're just an idea at the moment. They're just it? ideas, really yeah. Keen to do. I think there's a need. Mm. Cause there's a lot in the media, which is great because it highlights... The problems but I think for most women they need to be able to talk to somebody face to face and actually they'll have lots of questions and I guess it's not until you start that conversation that you really think about your questions you know you might go with one question but it leads on to loads of other things as yeah. well um we'll be interested to see how that area develops as well yeah uh, so fingers crossed that's available for women to take benefit from but also I guess it feeds into their relationships as well well I think the thing about menopause is again it can make you feel quite ill mm. And just not every woman is going to feel like that, but it, that for most women, there's some kind of impact that affects how you express your sexuality. Mm. It can be a tough old time for your partner. And if things are happening to you and you're not expecting them, or you think you should be able to just soldier through, or you don't understand them, don't understand. Yeah, there's a lot of physical symptoms that can affect sex, mm. like, uh, vaginal dryness. Uh, and the psychological yeah. side, I guess, that you're feeling that you're changing and you're not who you used to be. And, yeah, I mean, know, in one way, it? it can be quite liberating because when your periods come to an end, then the fear of pregnancy ends. So there are positives, but actually going through the menopause itself can be um, it quite horrendous. Mm. Uh, so it's how can you deal with all that and still retain a sort of vision of yourself as a sexual being if that's what you want to be? You know, it doesn't have to stop. And so we've covered loads of subjects and I'm really grateful, Lynn. For anybody listening who has felt that they've been affected by anything you mentioned, what would you suggest to do? Is a GP a good person to turn to, for example? Or is there somewhere that they should ideally go and seek help? Yeah, I think if it's something that's affecting you, go to your GP. If you're sure that it's a psychosexual problem, ring our service. Yeah, because you cover Gateshead and South Tyneside. Do we have somebody who covers Sunderland? They will provide or refer you on to some psychosexual service yeah. there's not one of me not one of you <laughs> in Sunderland but they might be able to see but, some but they will they will be able to provide some psychosexual therapy yeah. and I know so our sexual health services we've got uh, South Tyneside and then we've got Sunderland which is like separate we're all part of one trust both have got their own website so people can go and have a look and see what information's on there as well yeah. um, so Lynn thank you so much for joining us I'm really grateful thank you thank you Thanks for joining us for this episode of Our People Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and check out our other stories. Hit subscribe to keep up with the latest and catch up with what we've been up to on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Just search for our name.